Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Mandy. And this is Love Sober. The podcast for the sober and sober curious. Hi there, welcome back to Love Sober, the podcast for the sober and sober curious. And uh, this week it's me, uh, Mandy, and I'm interviewing Michael from Happy Without Hooch. And is it, tell me the other thing that you do. Well, it's Happy Without the Hooch that I do all my promo stuff on these days. So if you're going to look something up, look that one up. Um, Yeah, and um, Michael's a a funny guy um, who I discovered on Instagram, um, sort of, and he does a lot to kind of um, highlight and showcase other people's stories, really, and kind of give a space to um, celebrate people's successes, which is really nice. So it's a really positive um, Instagram account, uh, which I really like to kind of check out what you're doing. So it's, um, it's a real pleasure to have you uh, here on the podcast. So we always start just by checking in, saying hi and how are you doing? So how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's just a fairly mundane work day uh, nearing the weekend though. So yeah, it's it's a fairly average day and I quite like those. <laughs> Okay, good. Yeah, grace without uh, grace over drama is one of my favourite kind of recovery sayings. So yeah, kind of um, mundane without chaos could be another one, I guess. Um, yes, which is pretty much what I aim for. Yeah, um, and you are in Southend on Sea in Essex. If people don't know where that is, it's um, a seaside town in in the UK. Um, and that's quite like I saw on your Instagram that you'd been featured in the BBC um, local around kind of getting social stuff happening in your town. Um, and yeah, so tell me a little bit about your kind of journey to going alcohol free and um, and so, and starting the page, how that happened. OK, so it's been a bit of a, a bit of a bumpy ride. I don't really know where I can say my journey starts with going alcohol free. I know that my journey with alcohol definitely started when I was 18, worked in a pub, would have a few pints after work that people had bought. And I knew I loved it. I knew that um, it, it made me really happy and I wanted to continue doing it. So I continued doing that for for a good old 20 years. Um, I think I first realised or acknowledged that I had a problem with alcohol um, when I was 28, so about 10 years later. I think that's the first time I actually thought, hmm, this isn't always ending up too good at the end of the night. Um, And I went along to an AA meeting and at the time I was living in York because I spent most of my adult life living up north. Um, And I went for a bit, um, just probably for enough time to satisfy my partner at the time that I'd done some work and could get back to drinking again. Um, And from that point onwards, my relationship with alcohol had become steadily worse. It had gone from from the, I say 28 is the time I realised I had a problem. And I think it's because it was at that time when I wasn't just binge drinking at weekends. I would start drinking during the week as well. And I start drinking, I started drinking secretly so that my other half didn't find out, finding more and more inventive ways of sneaking alcohol into my body without being detected or well, 
I, I usually was detected, but uh, but by that point it was too late because I'd already got the the high from the alcohol that I wanted, and it become less and less of a social activity and more just satisfying this need that I had. Sort of when I got back home after work to just switch off, um, and I think as as time went on, I then started going out less. I'd still go out. And normally it'd end in disaster if I did. So I thought, well, the safe option here is that the fun part of the evening is the drinking. Mm. So I can do that at home. And if I'm drinking at home, then I don't have to worry about getting home because a lot of the time that didn't happen. Mm. Um, and also I'd save money because, you know, having an alcohol addiction is pretty expensive. And so I could drink more if I stayed at home and I didn't have to worry about the, uh, yeah, the, the getting home part. So that seemed like a perfect solution at the time. Um, a few years ago, I well, I moved down to Southend-on-Sea in 2014. A couple of years later, I checked into the local drug and alcohol centre um, where they run a smart recovery programme. I dabbled with that for a bit. I went along to AA again for a bit. And each time I'd sort of put in some work and then decide, oh, I've, I don't actually have a problem. Mm. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just a, a binge drinker and I can learn to control it because there was that one time in sort of 2014 yeah. where I went out and I had two drinks, went home and it was a nice night. So all I have to do is replicate that mm. one incident years ago every time I go out. And then lo and behold, surprise, surprise, I wasn't able to do that. Mm. Um, and that ended up costing me a lot of things um sort of financially I, i'd remortgaged my um house my flat so i needed some works done to it. i needed all new windows and i needed a new fire escape down into my little garden and so i got 15 grand um and i didn't get any of the house repairs done um but i did buy a lot of alcohol and my um partner had had enough um there are plenty of sort of warnings and you know ultimatums yeah. but i ignored them and then eventually my partner left and then I was struggling at work. I was just turning up some days um, and I could tell I was smelling of alcohol. I was hiding in the corner or somebody had noticed and I'd go home and find a reason why I had to work from home that day. And just ev gradually everything that I built, tried to build up over the years was gradually falling away from under my feet. And, and I think I just, I reached a point of resignation. It's like, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna see this through to the bitter end. I'm fed up. I'm fed up of trying to control it, trying to get on top of it. Clearly, I'm just an alcoholic. There's nothing I can do about it. It's in my DNA because I'm half Scottish and half my family all died of alcohol-related diseases. Right. So it's not worth fighting. Let's just see it through to the bitter end. And I think that's when it really just mm. it just avalanche from that point because I'd stopped trying and I'd stopped caring. I didn't the things I cared about had gone and quite frankly I didn't care whether I was alive or dead and if if alcohol was going to get me there quicker mm. then I thought oh so be it um I used to joke at work um they'd all talk about pensions and things because that's what adults do they get pensions um and they talk about like sort of their contributions I didn't understand any of it because I'd never had a pension in my life I'd always you know you get enrolled in a pension the first thing I'd do in a job is I'd unenroll myself um, so I'd have an extra sort of 200 quid a month 
from a booze. I'd say, yeah. no, well, that's that's important money for booze and fags, and that will make sure that I don't get it to get to pensionable age. Therefore, I don't have to worry about not having a pension. It was like my little, um, as to say, it was my guarantee that I wouldn't have to worry about being in poverty in my old age because I wouldn't get there. Um, and I think I have, I had a couple of low, really low points. I've, towards the end, I was, the depression was really kicking in. I think I was drinking because I was depressed and then I was depressed because I was drinking and I would often go to a really dark place and at the end of a drinking session or the next morning when I woke up I'd like overdose on meds that I had I've been in the hospital a few times from overdosing on on meds mm. um I I would often feel really suicidal but didn't really have the the guts let's say to see it through and so I'd sort of be in the kitchen with with a kitchen knife thinking oh, I just need I could just finish it all now not pluck up the courage and then go to bed with the kitchen knife under my pillow and this was a routine thing and this should have been a red flag and I was thinking well if I wake up in the middle of the night and feeling a bit more courageous I can yeah. and it's just at hand I can just do it there and then and so I was going to bed every night with a knife mm-hmm. under the pillow and I thought okay so and then I was back in hospital from an overdose and my my dad had come along and seen me there and I thought that I can't be putting my dad through this anymore mm. so I, there is another option you could just do the hard work you don't want to do and try and get some joy in life again mm. and um so that was back in um March 2020 is before the pandemic hit and so I decided i after a really disastrous night where well, it was actually two days solid of drinking neat vodka and taking drugs and lying in the middle of the road waiting for a sort of lorry to come along, that I decided, no, um, I'm going to try and make a bit of a change here because this is no way to live. And that was the start for me of uh, my, I suppose, what I call now my sober journey. Um, and... The next, I, I went to stay with my parents. I said, can I st- live with you for a while? Because um, I know that if I'm just here on my own in my flat, wow. I'm surrounded and with people who want to drink just sort of a few minutes away or me bored and living um, a 10 minute walk from three 24 hour off licenses that I'm not really going to succeed at this. So my dad welcomed me in. Um, I found out he wasn't too keen on the idea subsequently. Um, and then a week later, we were in lockdown. Right, wilder. And so I ended mm. up staying for three months because I didn't want to be locked down on my own. Definitely not. Mm. Um, and then I went back home. I started working again because I'd been out of work for this period. Um, I'd been suspended. Um, and that was alcohol related. And but I, I kept my job and I went back to work. And that all lasted for about seven months until October. And then I could feel the work stresses kicking in. I was in a bit of a low place. And I find that I get more depressed anyway, that time of year. It's the end of the summer, all the nice things you've done. It's like, "Mm, it's going to be getting darker and more miserable for quite a while now. (laughs) And I thought I was in the pub, which I often went to still, um, normally for quiz nights and things, things where the main focus of attention wasn't just alcohol but I, I was there and I thought the cocktail menu had been staring at me all night um and then I thought I could just have 
one drink, which led to three, which led to me going back to a friend's house where they had pretty much their own bar. Um, and then that one drink lasted a good four months. And I ended up in just the same situation of sort of us despair by the end of that. I was put under the care of the mental health team. Um, and then when I came out, when I was back at home, I started drinking again. <laughs> so, um, but only for like a, a month or just over a month. And then I thought, no, I was in a similar, I'd, I'd had a two day binge. I didn't realize it was a two day binge because as far as I was aware, I'd been drinking, gone to bed and then woken up the next day, but I'd actually lost 24 hours in between during which I'd been awake and doing stuff and talking and no recollection of any of the entire day. And I thought, feeling like hell again. Yeah. I thought it's time to start again. And that was on the 17th of February, 2021. So just over a year ago. Yay! Congratulations. Thank you very much. We share at my my uh, sober dates the 17th as well, 17th of August. Um, okay. So yeah, we're like, yeah, I, I love it when it's a uh, when I see it's the 17th, just have that little check-in with myself. Um, thank you for sharing your story. Um, and you know, fucking well done, you know, and like um there's a couple of things I wondered about so when you kind of look back um you know because we all start drinking you know most people do don't they at some point like especially in British culture it's very kind of part of our yeah cultural experience it's a rite of passage indeed yeah and what what do you think like looking back what do you think was the kind of the trigger or the um, the shift or the reason why it took such a big part in your life um, I think that it just enabled me to become relaxed around other people. Mm. Um, I think I was always, people have always seen me as a quite confident person. And I think when I've known people for a while and I'm in a, like if I'm at work and I've been, I know all my colleagues and I'm, we all know each other well. Yes, I am confident. I, I come out of Michelle after a few weeks, yeah. but that's after a few weeks' work. If I go into a, a situation where I don't know anyone, I'm not a confident person. I, this sort of fills me with utter dread. And um, so, I mean, I'd I'd had a bit of a tough time at school. Um, I was, yeah a little bit effeminate, not very good at sports. That didn't always go yeah. down well in 90s Essex, bit of sort of a wide boy lad culture. Yeah. Um, attitudes were a bit different there. And I was always had this sort of preoccupation that, oh God, someone's going to a pub, someone here is not going to like me. That might end up in a bit of unwanted attention, even if, like either teasing, I'm going to be sort of chase down the street someone trying to punch me and that's those are the sorts of situations that I was quite keen to avoid and alcohol I felt made me fit in a bit more but it also made me give less of a shit about what other people thought of me I'd just be myself and it's also I would never go up to a stranger and start speaking to them without alcohol I mean you don't do that yeah. whereas that's one of the things alcohol enables you to do um so it made me relax in other people's company um and then when I was 19 
I moved up to Manchester um, and I spent a lot of time on Canal Street and I was working there as a cocktail waiter, the world's worst cocktail waiter. And um, and it enabled me, again, to talk to strangers. And it's like, yeah, I, yeah if I wasn't drinking, there's no way I'd talk to strangers. And therefore, there was no way I'd meet a special someone or at that age, there's no way I was going to get laid unless I had a few drinks because I'm just going to be hiding in the corner and not speaking yeah. to anyone. So that was my that was my passport to a good time, let's say. Um, and everybody else was doing it. And it's just what young people do. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I think why it's important to kind of ask that question, because I think so many people that listen or like are questioning their relationship with alcohol, you know, there's that there's always that kind of question of like, why, why me? You know, and especially when you're like, oh, I sh-, that, that I certainly had like this very strong narrative that it was normal to drink. So to be a normal person, I should be able to handle my alcohol. So it was like, you know, however much, whenever I like stopped for a while, you know, because things got too bad, it was like, right, I need to be able to moderate and model normal behavior with alcohol because then I'll be a normal person. Um, And so when you're in that sort of frame of mind, there's a lot of those questions of like, why me? Like, why is it different for me? Like, what's going on? And I think it's kind of, it's quite healing to just understand, you know, like, okay, right. So there was, it it had a use for me. Like it was useful to quell my social anxiety or the feeling of not belonging or, you know, to calm the, the traumas of, of, yeah, being bullied or any of those things you know it had a use and it worked until it didn't work like you know because it's not we're not stupid it's not like we're weak willed it's just like it worked until it didn't work and now you need to find a different solution right that's kind of um and you mentioned obviously you know your mental health struggles as well you know um uh, anxiety depression and you know, we do a lot of work trying to educate people around that because, you know, if you're an anxious person by nature, alcohol is never going to be your friend, you know, in the end. Um, and so you mentioned like you'd been to AA, you'd been to Smart Recovery. Um, what kind of helped you this final time to kind of make it, yeah, to make that change again? What support um, did you get? Well, I think it's two things, really, um, that helped most. One was the smart recovery. I'd been going along sort of several months at a time and then not and been on and off for about three years before I actually um, had my first sort of success at sobriety, mm. my, that, um, that seven months. And um, I'd, be, I'd go along once a week because they, there was only one session that was after 5 p.m., each week which was a peer support group um and i'd um go along i'd take part in the session i'd listen to people's stories i'd contribute and then that's probably all i'd i'd do for the week um and then i'd go home not do any of the homework come back check in oh (laughs) yeah i've been drinking again Mm -hmm. um and i thought that all these little tools and things were sort of to hold about and taught thought they'd all gone in one ear and come out the other but then when I was making a serious attempt at um, D 
ditch and the booze, I found that it hadn't all gone in one ear and out the mm. other. I could, I started remembering these things I'd heard other people say, and they they were coming back to me. I didn't know I'd remembered them, and and then I, I I found that they were coming back to me when I needed them. So it's only it's because I was actually trying to apply it. Yeah, it was there. It hadn't just gone out the other ear, and. The other thing that really helped me, and particularly because of the time I stopped, which was a week before lockdown, um, is I found some online um, sort of Facebook groups for people who were in recovery. Mm. Um, and those were a bit of a lifeline because they had people who were going down all different sorts of routes of recovery from drugs and alcohol. Um, and sharing wisdom encouragement support and that was seven days a week I'd be checking in every day so instead of just going to one meeting for an hour and a half once a week I was checking in essentially every day in a peer support group just online and that provided me with a lot of motivation and inspiration encouragement and and wisdom among among the group and I found that actually was really helpful as well in my recovery and it was it was there when sort of a meetings at my local centre weren't because they're all closed for a good while. So those were my two main resources. And then what I found really changed things for me was that because I'd been involved in these online groups and um, I'd been along to Smart Recovery, they offered a course, an online course, where you could actually run the meetings yourself. And so I did the study, I got the certification, and then I started running the peer support group meetings and because I was having to try and um, teach other people these tools I had to know them inside out myself and I had to apply them myself so it's it's through trying to teach the tools to others that it really embedded those um, the, the learning in for me and was that through smart recovery or was that through, that was through smart recovery as well yes amazing I love that you know I I think yeah it's well, we talk a lot about community and talk about kind of the power of peer support and it's really hard sometimes when you're on the outside to kind of believe it and and again we were saying just before we started about trying to find your fit you know you might go to somewhere and it just might not feel right and then you get discouraged and then you just go okay this isn't for me and it's like that kind of message of just keep trying like keep trying to sort of or just like show up anywhere and that will do until you find, you know, but just keep, there's so many groups, like so many different places you can go. Um, and because you're going to find at some point people that you resonate with or just hold that space or it's just the right moment. Um, and it can shift as well, you know, because I yeah. mean, the first time I got sober, you know, Soberistas was a really amazing resource for me. And it was perfect at that time because, you know, it was anonymous and uh, it was just blogging, you know, and it was like, you know, writing was a tool for me. So it felt really useful. And then, you know, the second time round, it was it was Instagram. It was just like, you know, chatting to people online and seeing what other people were doing and just feeling inspired by the movement as itself and feeling that belonging of like, actually, I want to be part of this. You know, there was a real sense of not just I'm kind of leaving something behind like I'd understood I think at that point that 
in order for me to leave something behind, I needed to have something to go to. Um, yes. And and so community was was that. And I know community and like socialising and things is important to you. And it's been something that you've been kind of working on. So you've done some stuff in and around where you live. I have. Talk, talk um, a little bit about that. Well, I suppose part of this was to do with my experience of sobering up, really. Um, I, as I said, I went along to AA. Um, I didn't necessarily get, a, it wasn't my thing so much, but what I really did like about AA was the fact that it had fellowship and it's got a ready-made group of friends and they mm. do activities together and they meet up. And that was something that didn't really exist within the smart recovery, which I found was helping me um, sober up. It didn't really have that same element of of fellowship. You attended meetings, and normally that's where that's where it ended, and you'd see each other next week. Mm. Um, and after I um, had some sort of success at sobering up, the way I explain it now is the first three months of sobriety for me was all about taking stuff away. It mm. was I was taking away places. I was taken away particular friends who were really just drinking friends I'd taken away certain people I'd stripped myself bare and I felt well what is there now mm. and I, I've got to start adding stuff I, I don't want to be so I don't want to be just sitting at home every night and at the weekends watching Netflix series and not seeing anyone becoming some sort of recluse there's got to be another way of doing this but I, I don't Neither did I want to be going to sort of um, sort of chilly, drafty Quaker meeting rooms several times a week for the rest of my life. And I'm not that's not meant to be disparaging, but that's how I viewed things at the time. It's like yeah. I, I can't. I had a quite an active, albeit disastrous, social life before, and I don't feel like I can substitute that for meetings where people just talk about drink, and it's disasters for god knows how long for the you know how many years so i thought i, I want to build a social life and i went into a local facebook group a south end based one it wasn't to do with alcohol or sobriety and i, I was saying how i ditched the booze and i found that my social options were limited um because like the latest cafe that was open was open till six mm. and then the only places for socializing were well there's the there's the cinema um, but essentially you sit in silence yeah. in a room. There's not much socialising going on. Um, or there's the pubs or restaurants, and they're all very much based around alcohol. So I wanted to see if anybody else would be interested in socialising, like if I could find a venue in, in like a cafe to socialise with music or comedy. And I got a really good response, so much so that within a week I had my own little Facebook group of uh, about 200 people which is now about 500 um and there were plenty of people who wanted to socialize with alcohol i didn't specify that it was a group for people who are giving up alcohol yeah i guess it's just people who were happy to socialize without it and i found that there are lots of people out there who want to socialize but not in a pub um i've particularly i've got um they've got quite a lot of women who wouldn't go to a pub on their own they don't like the rowdy environment um and so it's not for them they're not saying that they don't ever drink they might be happy to but 
whether they've not necessarily had a problem with drink in the past. It's just they don't like the environment of being around um, people who are potentially drunk and intimidating. Um, I had people come to events. I had um, two people who hadn't actually been out socially for 10 years for that very reason. Um, they just didn't like the the pub environment or they one, one found it triggering just didn't want to be around alcohol and this was they'd found their limit uh, option so limited that they just hadn't been out mm. and the other who didn't actually have an alcohol problem but just didn't like being in the pub environment um and he, he volunteered for st john's ambulance and was always seeing the the effects of alcohol when he'd been out with friends he always ended up being like the one who had to look after everyone when they had too much and so he just 10 years ago he decided well that's it I'm not going out anymore um and then it'd come but he would come to an event a Saturday night with some live music coffees alcohol free drinks um so that that was that was great um I love that and I love that that way of viewing it as well you know it's just like creating space I mean that's kind of you know the idea around club soda too right it's just you know create inclusive spaces for people that don't want to drink um but you know I I I was reading on the article from the BBC about yeah one of the musicians that said that you know it was just such a kind of lovely experience because people actually just wanted to listen to the music you know and as a musician found it a very positive experience which I thought was yeah, really, just to see it on that, the other side, you know, that actually there's there's people that are performers or comedians or whatever, and how alcohol can detract from the, you know, the, the wonderful side mm. of being with other people. Um, amazing. And so you've got like 500 kind of people in, in and around your local area, which is just... Yeah, in the, in the Facebook group, um, in terms of events, we don't get 500 people turning up to events now, but a lot of those will only ever just, they just want people to connect with online as in, as in like a, a support group. And that's fine. Um, I've stopped doing sort of running my own events so much now. A mm. um, couple of reasons at the time when I set it up, I had a lot of um, spare time because mm. I wasn't working and now like work is really busy. And so I've, I've been using a venue. I'd had to get all my, each time I have to get all the drinks there, sell them, then take it all back to a storage unit. And I just couldn't, I don't have the time to dedicate to that now. Um, but what I found was that at the same time, when I started running these events, there's a cafe locally who then wants to get on board and started putting on um, occasional events once or twice a month. So, and that was completely alcohol free. Yeah. So, and since then another cafe has opened that's open till 10 p.m just regularly it's not used a huge amount um and then also there's this like a like a board game group that goes around different cafes in the area and they've got video games and board games and you just turn up and it's a fiver and you can play all of them and you meet new people and so in a way what i wanted to create was um different options like where the pub wasn't the only option and those those now exist within my town without me having to run it yes we've got options (laughs) that's the ideal (laughs) yeah and and it wasn't going to be a money-making venture for me I mean I was selling drinks I think in but that's one thing that I think you're going to struggle with if you're running alcohol-free events uh, is actually if you're trying to do it for profit you're going to struggle because people don't go out and smash back 10 cups of coffee or um, 10 non-alcoholic 
drinks in a night they'll probably have two maybe three if you're lucky so it's not a big money spinner and if you're putting on entertainment you've got to compete with pubs who are willing to spend a lot more money because they're getting a lot more money um especially if it's on a friday and saturday night which is when people actually want to go out so um i've i've we're also an hour from London here, and um, if there are events in London. I, when I go along to those, I always say, like, for example, there's the Alcohol Free Comedy Club, which runs in Bethnal Green, and it's absolutely brilliant. And that's um, about an hour from us. And so when I go along to that now, I, I go along and say, look, I'm going to get a table of about 10 people. Does anybody want to come along? And then we'll get a table and we'll go along as a group. So I'm not having to run the event and I yeah. get to enjoy it as well, selfishly, as just a participant. I get to get the ticket and enjoy the experience like everybody else. I'm not saying I won't do any events again in the future, but it's not going to be, I can't do it at the frequency. Um, yeah. And I haven't got my own venue, really. So well, I think that's, you know, and I, again, it's it's when you start looking at things at a more sort of systemic level and, um, yeah, the support systems that are there, because that's part of the, the issue. The same for us, you know, doing events. It's like we did one event and, you know, it, it turned a profit. We did another pro- event and it, you know, and it didn't. And all of that was about um, the venue costs. You know, it's just so expensive to hire place so it's like trying to find but again it's like those venues need support you know from the government or whatever to know that these are important things um and and useful things um to provide spaces you know and well let's not talk politics but you know it's been incredibly underfunded in the last i think think there's a need for it yeah and if these places are going to exist then realistically they're not going to be entirely private they're going to need support in some sort of way exactly because it's difficult to pay all the bills when people aren't having 10 drinks a night yeah yeah absolutely um so what's been your kind of area biggest area of personal growth you've noticed since you've lived without the hooch um i think it's been confidence Mm. and tackling that anxiety that I didn't even acknowledge I had really until I was a few months sober because everybody always um, thought I was confident. I thought I was confident, but I knew I didn't like social situations where I didn't know people. My, My biggest fear used to be networking. And that was, if I was told for work, I had to go to a networking deal, I'd absolutely dread it. A, because, um, I wouldn't know anyone there and you have to be professional all the time. And B, because I knew that there'd be drink there and mm. I would use that. And I, I described networking um, to somebody before as going along in a suit, trying to impress a, pe- a load of people you don't want to speak to and then vomiting on their shoes. Um, <laughs> and that was partly because that was my experience of it. I think my mm. fir- one of my first networking days was I was working in Liverpool and I was invited along to... Uh, the Liverpool City Council Capital of Culture bash mm. and I went along and it was a it was a free bar I don't remember much of it but I got talking to the leader of the city of um, leader of the council for Liverpool and I was sick on his shoes and my boss had to take me home on the train yeah. with a carrier bag in front of me mm. um, luckily for me at the time the the leader of the council was also very inebriated 
and he didn't remember said incident because he came into our office the next day and he had no recollection of it. So I got away with that one. Um, mm. I won't give an indication of the year. I don't want to embarrass anyone. <laughs> it was, and that was that really set the template for me for networking dues. Um, so I'd either not drink, I'd either drink at all, a lot and make an idiot of myself, or what I just tried to do was do the bare minimum, maybe avoid the drink, um, stay for as little time as I could get away with, mm. um, collect a couple of business cards and then dash, and just avoid the whole awful experience. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? It's like the the Christmas party trigger, you know. It's like, oh God! I and to, wedding. Oh God! You the know. Christmas party. I'd embarrass myself at yeah. one of those. Um, Me too. After that, I would I would volunteer as the nominated driver. Everybody would think I was a hero. Um, but it was just a way of me self sabotaging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it backfired one year because I, other than the Christmas party, I'd been out to work socials and got extremely drunk and embarrassed myself. And then one year I um, volunteered to be the nominated driver again at the Christmas party. And I actually, I'd been dreading it for weeks. I went along and I was going from table to table, talking to everyone. And I had an amazing time. Uh, such an amazing time, though, that I was all giggly and being silly. And then rumour spread that I'd been drinking. When I hadn't, I hadn't touched a drop all night, but they knew that I liked to drink. And because yeah. I was be being so happy and silly and giggly, this rumour spread that I'd been drinking. And then all of a sudden, the, all these people I was meant to be taking home, they all ordered taxis. <laughs> they wouldn't believe you. They didn't they trust would, you. They, no. Yeah, and then my boss came up to me and started speaking to me. And I, was, I felt really, I felt really insulted. Was yeah. like, I, have, I have literally been drinking water all oh, night from the yeah. drugs. Yeah. And now nobody, now nobody trusts me. Well, that's and, all those things kind of like impact on your self-esteem, though, don't they? Those are those little knocks that just kind of add to your drinking story, right? Because it's like, God, can I not do anything right? You know, <laughs> Might as well be pissed if everyone thinks I'm going to be pissed, you know. Um, and tell me, um, so around this, this concept of confidence, it's quite interesting then that now part of your kind of sober toolkit is doing comedy like stand-up comedy which is probably the most terrifying thing to do and there's quite a funny story about how you kind of ended yep. up doing it so tell me a little bit about that that all goes back to to business networking um so I went um along to uh, what was meant to be a networking night and it was a place called Caddies and it was in what's normally their comedy club um room so I went along um to the the, the networking night and um, I turned up and I know the guy who runs it. And I was like, I looked inside and I was like, this doesn't, doesn't look like it's networking. Am I like, I've got, a, you haven't got a ticket, Mike. And I was thinking, oh, I didn't realise it was a ticketed event. Was, and then it transpired that I turned up a week early. I, I turned up at the right day and time, just a week early. So instead of networking, it was an improvised comedy night. Um, so I thought, oh, well, I've come here now. So I just bought the ticket and sat down um I really enjoyed it and then on the way out they're doing the little sales pitch for their upcoming um improvised comedy course which is a 10-week comedy course and you end up doing a little showcase like the one I'd just seen and I'd, I'd known this existed for ages and I thought there's no way on God's green earth I'm going to be going up on stage any time in my life and trying to be sort of spontaneously funny that's just not going to happen um and I thought that's probably why I should do it. Yeah. 
So in my drinking days, I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. And if I did that, I'd probably be really drunk by the time I got on stage because I'd have been drinking to overcome the nerves. Mm. So I thought, no, you've got to, you've got to start. You can't keep on putting things off because of fear and anxiety for the rest of your life. Otherwise, you are going to be that person who's just sitting inside watching Netflix every night as everybody else has a great time. Mm. So I thought, no, I'm going to sign up for this. I'm not necessarily signing up for going up on stage at the end, but I'm going to I'm going to do the course. It's something to do. It's it's self-development and it's facing your fears. And like, if you're going to be sober, you've got to face your fears. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you're just not going to do anything. So I did the course. It came to the night when I was going to go on stage and I'd be, I looked around me and other people were going up for the first time. They were, I saw them downing like pints of beer and you could see they're sort of like really nervous, shaking a bit. And normally that'd be me. Um, and for some reason, I just, I didn't feel any fear. I think one of the things that uh, addiction had sort of taught me was that, well, I was, um, I'd often made an idiot of myself without meaning to. Mm. Um, I've been embarrassed and humiliated so many times through drinking that actually if I go up there on stage and I'm not very funny on my first time of doing an improvised comedy routine, then that doesn't really matter. Um, What matters is that I get up on that stage and I survive and I remember it all. And so I set my bar really low. I didn't put any pressure on myself to be hilarious because all I wanted to do was prove it to myself that I could get up on a stage. And so I I went on the stage and I didn't, I just, I went along to enjoy it and I Mm. enjoyed the experience. Um, I don't think I was the most funny person there. I wasn't the least funny either. I won a rap battle, would you believe it? Um, (laughs) And... I enjoyed it. So I've signed up again. I've got another showcase this Sunday and next Sunday. And then I've started doing bits of stand-up comedy. So yes, it was due to business networking that I ended up signing up <laughs> for an improvised comedy course. And that's that's one of the best things I found for self-confidence. And what I've, you know, I wrote down about kind of what, you know, alcohol gave you at, at that time was, you know, giving less a shit about what people thought right and and you know what the brilliant kind of irony now is what sobriety's given you is giving less shit about what people think because you know no matter what as you said like you walked into that experience for your own experience of it rather than you know what other people were going to think of you and you know and you enjoyed it because it came from like your own authentic experience which is like why like sobriety blows my mind you know because I never knew that it would give me all the tools that I thought I was getting from booze. (laughs) It's like, oh, right. (laughs) No, actually, me not putting poison in my body, um, me not, you know, and again, that sort of thing. I I embarrass myself so many times. I, yeah, embarrass myself at the Christmas party, at weddings, like all those kind of shameful stories that I held inside and drank over because it was like you're such a shit person I can't believe you said that thinking over all the things I'd done and then you know you can go into you know I remember being at a wedding sober seeing my ex-boyfriend and actually telling him what I thought of him um, because he wasn't nice to me and walking away from that going huh 
I meant to say that, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and go, oh my God, I can't believe I said that, you know, because I, you know, I, I wanted to, like there was strength behind it, you know, which just. And you remembered it. And I remembered it. Yeah, of course, there was a bit of vulnerability around it afterwards, you know, and we need to learn tools to, yeah, look after ourselves and our vulnerable selves, um, which is where kind of self-care and, and all of those things come in. But, uh, you know, fundamentally, I, I was clear in that choice. And yeah, and I remember it, which is a big difference to a lot of my tw- 20s and 30s, for sure. Um, so. Yeah, in terms of looking after yourself, like self-care and kind of looking after your sobriety, what do you do kind of, you've got your comedy, but what else do you do to kind of look after yourself? Well, the self-care bit's still a bit of a work in progress, I have to admit. You know, I still struggle to get up on time for work and things like that that I should have sought. I've I've had, maybe I'll never get that sorted. I like my sleep. So one of the things I do for self-care is I actually sleep. Yeah. So um, I used to, I don't know why, when I was in my drinking days, I'd stay up for as long as possible and just drink. And I dread sort of the idea of going to bed because I probably because I knew the next morning I'd be feeling rough. So I'd just delay the next morning mm. by staying up later and making it all worse. Um, I like, I go to bed sometimes by like midnight. Mm. Um, there have been times when I've been to bed at 10. I was going to say midnight, you I know. crazy kid. Like 10 o'clock Mid- is like, yeah game Mid- over midnight sort of like the normal now between midnight and one but it used to be between two and three drinking sort mm. of neat vodka or whiskey I used to mix it up a bit you know varieties mm. the spice of life um so I do that I'm I've not really got onto the exercise bandwagon I've dabbled with it every now and then it doesn't mm. stick yeah I like the odd gong bath you know I've opened up my mind there I, I, I did in my earlier days. I kept on seeing these sober people were doing gong baths. And I thought, what the hell is that? That sounds like <laughs> the biggest load of hippie shit I've ever heard. And then I looked into it. There's no bathing involved. I know, yeah. There's no bathing. It's um, it's a form of, you get to do yoga, which I quite like, because you know it's, it's beneficial to touch your toes and loosen up a bit. Um, the meditation, and then just, oh, it's, it's really relaxing. Somebody hitting a, a gong, playing these other instruments, and I love it. So um, I'm trying to do at least one of those a month. Um, I mean, there's so many things I want to do, but I could spend more money on that than I used to on the booze if I did everything I wanted. So, so what, what's in your kind of like when you imagine you like, I don't know, yeah, a little bit further down this journey, what what are the things that you want to be doing um, as you kind like, of sober self? If I can sort of, you know, pretend that money's not a problem. Um I mean, I see myself sort of living in a little cottage away from people in the Welsh countryside. Nice. I've got my chickens. Nice. I used to keep chickens. I do miss them. I've got my sheep. I used to have some of those. Um, and my veg patch. And I'd I'd go along to social events. But, you know, when they're done, I can drive away to the middle of nowhere. I've got my trees. I can go for long walks in the woods, up the mountains. I just love nature and countryside which I don't have a huge amount of around here so Mm. uh yeah I used to when I lived in Yorkshire I mean I could travel any direction for 45 minutes to an hour and I'd be somewhere absolutely stunning in a national park from if I drive 45 minutes to an hour from South End I'm just about on the M25 which is the beginning of the journey to somewhere nice Um, and the kind of worst bit of the journey as well the 
whenever yeah, you hit the M25, it's just yeah. like, oh gosh. I mean, South yeah. End in summer, I absolutely love it. Mm. Um, there are when you're local, there's some lovely places you can go. The parks, and I try to avoid the seafront on the busy days. I go to the parks because everyone's on the seafront. Mm-hmm. Um, in the winter, it can be a little bit, a little bit depressing because the whole seafront is closed. But that's also nice. It's got, it means you've got it to yourself as well yeah. if you don't mind walking in the rain at two degrees centigrade. Um, but no, I'm I'm a bit of a hippie at heart, and I love the countryside. I grew up in a little village, and um, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm not made for the hustle and bustle of the city anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's what I'd like to be doing. I still I still want an active social life. I, I still want to visit people and go to sort of comedy and arts and events but I do see, see myself being somewhere a little bit more relaxing and you said there's there's lots of things you'd like to try so what's on your kind of yeah sober wish list of you know activities oh activities well I want to definitely continue the comedy mm. um writing I, I sort of obviously have to write for my Instagram page and I do I've started doing a bit more writing for fun mm. it's writing is one of those things where I've always done it for work and then that's it it's taken the joy out of writing for me yeah. because the last thing when I'm I sort of work in public relations I I trained as a reporter and so I've never really done much writing for pleasure it's all just been for a particular purpose maybe sort of telling people about their recycling collections or something exciting like that um and uh so yeah I want to do more of the writing um I would like to do a bit more traveling when it's allowed yeah and actually see places other than just the bars in those cities like to do you know actually get to know local people when I go there Mm. (laughs) a lot of the time holidays have been pretty much the same sort of formula I'd go to a place do a bit of sightseeing during the day hit the pub yeah hit the bar um and I think next time I go somewhere I'd like to do something a little bit different from that I mean I still love camping and getting out into nature my the ultimate holiday is still under canvas mm. and then taking a mountain but there's just so much more to see when you're not drinking making the most of days as opposed to you know filling the days with stuff until you get to night time so that's when the fun can begin yeah and I love that and it's such a kind of inspirational message you know for people that are listening who are still kind of questioning if if they can or if they want to go sober or if it's possible how will life look like you know and I remember because those there are those big things you think about like you know holidays it's like how can I possibly so be sober on holiday but when you can flip your thinking and just be like I get to have the days like I get to have a full experience and I get rested you know I mean I remember my first time I went back to you know I live in France and my parents-in-law have got a house in Brittany and so we go every year you know so I've got a lot of drunk holiday experiences of being there you know and my father-in-law you know it's a parity for lunch it's parity for dinner you know you can basically drink all day every day quite um without many people questioning it and then you know I remember sort of being there the first time and getting up really early and no one else was up and I just went down to the beach by myself you know not knowing at that time of year that it was actually low tide at that time you know like uh, seeing the whole beach and just like I had my kids with me and um yeah and then I just sat and read my book and just 
had such a sort of fulfilling day went and saw stuff you know been going to the same place in Brittany for I don't know like 20 years you know and like went on day trips and saw different areas and um and then yeah and just like had dinner and you know read my book and went to bed and didn't feel bad about myself it's like how did I not know that that was a better solution (laughs) for me than that like consistent kind of disappointment in myself and then waking up at four in the morning you know and not being able to sleep again and then being grumpy with the kids and all of that stuff um so yeah thank you for just highlighting that because it's so nice to sort of share that um I'm conscious of time because I know you've got things to to do and um and so I'm not going to keep you too much longer but we always finish um with your tip of the day and your reason to love being sober but I know before that we talked about this um that you're actually um doing uh, a trip with um we are lucid we love lucid yeah yeah so do, do um to... that's fresh off the press so talking about holidays um uh, we love lucid if you don't know it check it out it's um a small company that provides alcohol free holidays so if you are worried about um what you can do without alcohol on a holiday well i'm going to be going on a trip with we love lucid and it's um it's all about me it's not it's a, it's a trip with me um and I, I spoke to um lauren who runs it and we went through what sort of things we could do on the holiday so it's going to be uh sort of a long weekender like a thursday till sunday in edinburgh the capital of comedy itself in october um from the 20th of october and it's going to encompass some great comedy some great food so your haggis your neeps and tatties you're going to try some brilliant alcohol-free drinks by ferragaya um but this this is what i'm looking forward to the most um but we're going to do a crash course in bagpiping <laughs> and that is something i've always wanted to try because as you probably guessed from my accent i am actually scottish yeah. well well, yeah. well half half scottish um mum was scottish all her side of the family dundee um and i feel like i i should be able to play the bagpipes and and i can't so i'm going to rectify that one um, I, I imagine it's actually quite hard I imagine it is. I mean, I can play the recorder. How much different can it be? <laughs> and I think there's some kind of coordination between, you know, pressing the bag and the kind of yeah, that's, the that's squeezing. The drone, and... that's the... Yeah, that's the Yeah. But yeah, I intend to get a good sort of da 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 da. I don't know how long this crash course is, but I'm hoping to be signed up by some sort of bagpiping <laughs> troupe by the end of it. Yeah. I'm going to discover my my tartan because I'm, oh, I had, my mum's surname was uh, McPherson. I did have the option when my parents separated of being a McPherson. Mm. So I've, I've got to find the McPherson tartan. I, I think I need to get the, the kilt. I'm going to do all the um, cultural appropriation. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can because you're half Scottish. So. Exactly. It's not yeah. appropriation. I'm just, um, yeah. yeah, I'm just exploring You're, you're reclaiming, you're claiming. Reconnecting. Your yes, yes. Yeah. And I'd um, love some people to come with me. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, then uh, then check out um, my Instagram or We Love Lucid. Um, the full details are going to be published very soon. Probably they will be published by the time this podcast goes yeah. out. Um, and it does sound brilliant. And, you know, and I like Lauren's, the work that she does is always really brilliant and really fun, um, you know, fun stuff. So and I, I just love that that A, there is an 
an alcohol-free comedy club which I didn't know about um, so thank you for that um, and it's certainly been something missing from my life is fun and comedy and and laughter like the power of laughter um, in healing is just it's, it's incredible and yeah we haven't had a lot of that recently so. it's one of the reasons we drink often isn't it because mm. we meet new people and we end up laughing yeah. well you can meet people and laugh without alcohol and it's even better because you yes. don't have a groggy head in the morning you remember it yeah and you don't make a knob of yourself <laughs> so I thoroughly recommend it laughing oh, yeah. without alcohol it <laughs> yes. cures indeed it does um and thank you for this podcast because it's really cheered me up and I hope people listening um yeah have got something out of it too so we always finish with what your tip of the day is so a tip around kind of alcohol-free living and your reason to love being sober okay tip for alcohol-free living is go to bed (laughs) that's that's it get some sleep some days if they're particularly bad all you can do is get yourself to bed and hope it's better when you wake up so get lots of sleep and reason to love being sober today um the sun is shining and even when it's not it's going to at some point soon yeah love it yeah and um that reminds me that um yeah the tip of the day about getting sleep uh, we call that putting on your pajama armor in the love sober community so there you go oh excellent put on your pajama armor i'll be yeah. using that one yeah um okay thanks so much michael it's been an absolute pleasure and if you're listening and you're immediately concerned about your drinking please do reach out um you can contact us at hello at love sober um you can go on soberistas they have a anonymous ask the ask, uh, ask the doctor service um which is a really brilliant resource um reach out to michael at um we'll put all your details before bit below but what's your um handle on instagram happy without the hooch happy without the hooch um get in contact with him um you know reach out um you're not alone and we'll see you next week for more chats